Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn, and the above entitled action upon our oath do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I'd have said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good evening. This is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdicts. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. This is episode 10, Social Distancing and Horse Racing. Tonight, making their third appearance, are two of our favorite guests on the podcast, Mr. Michael Amo from Orange County, New York, and Dr. Brian Langlois from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Mr. Amo and Dr. Langlois represent Thorofan, a 501c organization, founded to retain and enrich the experiences of existing horse racing fans, attract new fans, and give fans a voice in the industry. The Kentucky Derby won't be run on the first Saturday in May for the first time in roughly 88 years, and the future of the Preakness Stakes and Belmont Stakes are uncertain. Unlike other sports, racetracks around the country continued live racing without spectators. Some tracks later suspended racing due to stay-at-home orders, or local reg- regulations, and many others like Oaklawn, Laurel Park, Gulfstream Park, and Tampa Bay Downs were able to continue. We'll pick up where we left off in our second interview and talk about the work Mr. Amo and Dr. Langwa are doing in their communities to enrich the lives of all creatures, great and small. We'll also talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the racing industry and the events planned to make the first Saturday in May of 2020 a memorable one. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And Mr. Amo may be joining us later, or uh, he may not be able to make it tonight. Good evening, Michael and Dr. Langlois. How are y'all? Good evening. That's definitely a bummer about uh, Mr. Amos, but definitely enjoy having him on. So I can't wait till we schedule another one of these to hear from him. But with everything crazy going on in the world, I'm sure it's getting a little bit difficult with schedules. Yes. So 
And Dr. Langlois, how are you? Oh, not too bad. Hanging in, uh, you know, with all the COVID craziness that's going on. So uh, just trying to make the best of it, as we all are. And, uh, you know, fortunately, everybody around me and, and you know, here at the pantry and all that stuff has remained healthy, uh, which, is, which is good for everybody. So, uh, you know, just trying to ride yes. it through. Yes. And you have had some great instructional videos on the proper disposal and removal of masks and gloves. Yeah, it was it was something um, I didn't initially think of doing, but then I thought about it actually more. It, it kind of came to me more when I was at a supermarket parking lot and watching people take them off, and then one, uh, you know, just throwing them on the ground, which is really infuriating. Uh, two, I noticed that you, you know people have to understand the point of gloves, and if you don't take them off the right way, you're not really, you know, preventing any Protecting kind of your... yourself. So right. Um, yeah, both of them, uh, you know, the videos were pretty well received. And, you know, just basic things, because I think a lot of people, they see, like, the, the, the medical dramas on TV or, or some of the medical comedies or whatever, and they think that's the way that gloves should be taken off, and it, that's really not the case at all. There's a there's a simple procedure to it just to protect yourself and, um, you know, to make sure that, uh, you know, you, you dispose of things properly as well. Correct. I, I really appreciated that, especially... I think the first one I also had that experience in a parking lot at a grocery store, seeing gloves and masks all over the ground. Yeah, it was it was kind of shy. I mean, when I I mean, it, there must have been at least where I was at least fifteen or twenty pairs in the in the parking lot section that I was in. It was um, people just seemed te- terrified to or know what didn't know what to do with them once they took them off. So right. And yeah, there's like there that's what garbage cans are for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I had one of those little wipes that I used uh the other day and I just balled it up in my cart and then as I was walking out the door, pulled it out of the front seat of the cart and threw it in the trash can. Very easy. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, and I, I I understand sort of people's fear with with not, you know, being used to it, but that's really still no excuse not to, you know, uh, not to litter with it or anything like that, because obviously with those latex and rubber gloves, those things, they don't exactly decompose in the uh, environment very easily, so. No. All right, and real quick, I want to give a little shout-out. Fuji Imports is a local New Orleans company. They are making face masks. You can find them on Facebook at Fuji Imports. Uh, I ordered five face masks. It was $21 with tax. Shipping is free. And I ordered them on Wednesday, received them today. They're cloth masks. Uh, Mr. Fujita manufactures karate gear. But he's repurposed his manufacturing uh equipment to make these cloth masks so if you need face masks fuji imports on facebook awesome so all right well let's get into the show um one of the first things i want to talk about uh because we've never made it to that part of the show in our prior interviews is Dr. Langlois, you go above and beyond for your various charity activities. Yeah, um, I guess that's one way of putting it. Um, 
uh, some might use other, you know, uh, medic, medical psychological disturbance terms, but uh, we try to keep it fun, uh, you know, and interesting and different and stuff like that. So. No, because the things that you put yourself through to help the pet pantry or the thoroughbred aftercare, the Pennsylvania thoroughbred aftercare organization, I mean, that you deserve recognition. You've had your legs waxed. Yeah, and that weekend back, which is, you know, a bonus to me, um, which means they're already trying to figure out what part of my body to wax, you know, this fall for the for the fundraiser and stuff like that. <laughs> okay, that that'll be interesting. Well, the the hair on your legs didn't come back. No, it did. Uh, it was a little while, but oh. it, it it did. Um, and not quite. Well, I guess just about almost as full as it was before and and stuff like that. It's uh, it okay. wasn't as I will say it wasn't as horrible an experience as I thought it would be, but um. Not something that I would routinely do to myself or anything like that. So, right. Um, I, yeah, I I get my eyebrows waxed, and that's about the only thing that I can tolerate. <laughs> so, um, you spent a weekend in a cage on the roof of the pet pantry. Yep, uh, we may be looking at doing that again this year at some point. Usually, we we run that. We call it the free the vet promotion. Um, uh, we usually we try to run that about once every two years. Uh, we find that that works well, and it gets this. Yeah, last time was the first time I was up on the roof, um, which made for some interesting. Uh, you know, a uh, couple of people, you know, parked alongside, and you know, are kind of staring up and wondering about things and stuff. But that's really what it was about. You know, obviously we do it as a fundraiser, but also just to kind of raise awareness of what the pantry does and you know the importance of donating. You know, and and, and all of that stuff. And I think we uh, the one we did. Uh, two years ago, pulled in about six to seven thousand for the pantry, which was which was really good. So that that is that is good, and uh, I'm pleased to say that we have uh, two pet pantries in the New Orleans area now. We have That's a gentleman great. in Marrero started one, and then Seuss's Rescues and the uh, Louisiana SPCA started one when COVID started so that's a great thing and and hopefully um they will remain even after the crisis is over with COVID-19 yeah it's it's really then, amazing um to see how much it's not really I guess a simple need but in some ways it is you know just providing pet food for those that are are suffering a little bit of financial hardship, either because of COVID or just in general, how much of a difference that makes for them um, and and their pets. I mean, it's when we founded the pantry eight, nine years ago, it really was with that premise in mind, was that we were just seeing these animals surrendered for no other reason that people came across hard times. It was right around the the time of the recession and just coming out of that. And there were people that just, that was it. You know, it was the sole issue was being able to feed their pets. And so, you know, we we just had a major handout this weekend. Um, We just got uh, a really nice donation from American Humane. Um, But, you know, kind of what we do and the idea is it's not, you know, we didn't come up with it. It's, we just tried to refine it a little bit to to make it a little bit more user-friendly for everybody that's on our program. 
but it really is nice to see all of these other places um, really recognizing the importance of pet food and even the human uh, or the human uh, food pantries. Um, a lot of them now are starting to try to figure out a way to have a section dedicated for pet food in them in theirs because uh, they do realize that a lot of these people have pets, um, you know, that that need food as well. And we all know that a lot of times people will feed their pets over themselves. So it's, uh, you know, right. we want to we really want to try to provide, uh, you know. Good, good quality food to everybody and, and uh, just kind of keep that human-animal bond together, especially in times like these where a lot of people are on the stay-at-home orders and, you know, your, your pet um, may be all you have or the only thing keeping you sane if you're locked up with your family right now. So, Right. I Unfortunately, my dog and my sister went to Thibodeau, and now they can't come back. So... There in Thibodeau, and I've been without a dog. I don't know when the mail comes. Yeah, I don't yeah. know when the food deliveries get here because the dog bell is not working. So um, I I regret letting her take the dog to Thibodeau. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure it'll be a really nice reunion once uh, everything is lifted and yeah. people are allowed to travel I, again and and. Uh... You know, we'll get yeah. to a semi-normal state. I don't think it's going to be normal for quite a long time, but uh, but at least a semi-normal state. Right. And then another thing you've done is you spent 50 hours in a stall. Yep, that was um, – that I can't remember what brain cells misfired on me when I thought that went up, but um, – it was it was for the rescue um, Pennsylvania Racehorse Rehoming Rehabilitation and Rescue, uh, which is they're not part of the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance or the TA accredited ones, but they are based out of Harrisburg, and they're an all volunteer rescue. They do really amazing work. Um, the veterinarian who founded it and runs it uh, lives on the on the farm property, and uh, you know has basically sunk every penny cent she has into these rescue horses. And they've taken on some really, really difficult medical cases off the track, um, uh, as well as from some other places, things that maybe some other rescues wouldn't be able to necessarily take on just because of the veterinary care that was, was needed. So um, Dr. Pap, mm-hmm. who has taken care, you know, uh, taken the rescue on and, and founded it, um, you know, she, she puts her heart and soul into it, as do all the volunteers that are there. So uh, we were trying at that point um, to, when we did it, or when I did it, we were looking to raise some funds to take care of a, a horse that needed a major surgery that was found neglected on the backside of a racetrack in Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, it was a, you know, it was an interesting experience. It was, I think I did it in a March or April, and it was um, definitely colder than I thought it would be. Um, and it, it, it's interesting kind of being in that environment, uh, especially overnight, because you kind of get to see how some of the horses, you know, act when, Nobody's uh-huh. around and, and and things like that. So it was a uh, uh, it was an interesting experience, and they definitely um, you know we we definitely had a lot of fun with it and stuff like that. So it's something I might I might consider doing again uh, if they have a stall free to do it. Um, I just happened to luck out that they did that time, but I think right now they're full taking on cases. Right, right. So that that would be interesting. I would love to do that. I wonder if I can go down to fairgrounds and see if I can sleep in a stall overnight and see horses. I don't think they would necessarily, you know, 
it, it, it's basically the same premise as the, um, uh, you know, I think they call them Boxtown volunteers, and um, they go around, uh, some campuses have them where they basically just, uh, they set up to kind of live like a, uh, a homeless person would for a day or two or something like that, just to kind of get the experience and, and raise money at the same time and, and raise awareness of the issues and stuff like that. So it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it's something, again, it's, it's, it's different. It's, it's kind of a little bit of fun. It, it definitely raised a lot of um, awareness for the rescue. And, uh, I, you know, the, the rescue, like a lot of the horse rescues right now, they definitely do need more help, um, you know, with, with COVID kind of affecting uh, the, the supply chain of a lot of things and, and a lot of horses that mm-hmm. now can't race. Um, some of them are being retired sooner to, to rescues and stuff. So it's, uh, you're going to see an influx coming into a lot of these rescues probably over the next couple of months. Oh no. I I hope that hopefully they'll be able to get back to normal and back to racing sooner rather than later so that doesn't cuz you don't want to overwhelm the rescues. No, and, and, and certainly that's the big, don't you want... know, and that's the big thing especially with these equine rescues. Um a lot of people, you know, it's it's not the same as here like if we have cats, well, okay, in one room I can keep comfortably 5 to 10 cats or whatever you know, to be put up for adoption. Can't exactly do that with horses. Um, and there's no. obviously a, a much bigger logistical and and uh, monetary and resource requirement needed for every horse that comes off the track. So uh, it does make it very hard for a lot of rescues, you know, that are already stretched to capacity. And, um, you know, a lot of them, uh, uh, Pennsylvania Racehorse Rehoming is no different. You know, they'll try to jerry-rig something into a stall if they can, um, you know, even if it's temporary for a day or two, just to be able to take another horse in that, you know, otherwise might have been heading to the auction ring or something like that. So, uh, you know, it's it's really important that everybody really looks to support, you know, whichever, you know, local uh, rescue is, is, is near you. Even if so much as it's just, even if you can buy a bag of feed or, you know, one bale of hay or something like that, it's, you don't re- people don't realize how far that goes for a lot of these rescues. It's... Um, uh, so it's it's certainly something to to look into and 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 try to help out with. Okay, and then um, I remember you posting earlier this year. Um, there was something about a cupid costume and an emergency surgery. What can yeah, you tell us about that? That turned into kind of like we were doing a fundraiser on Valentine's uh, Valentine's Day evening. And uh, we were calling it Axe Your X. We were doing it at a, one of the um, hatchet houses. And, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek, it was kind of like if anybody wanted to bring a picture of their ex or something like that and put it up and then, you know, throw a couple of axes to kind of, you know, bury the hatchet or whatever on, on that failed relationship they could. Um, but as – and basically we have at the pet pantry, we have a mascot named Chance, which is basically me in a – in a giant dog costume, and um, he was going to play the role of Cupid that night, and we had the whole costume out and stuff like that. Um, and as is often what happens uh, with my luck on these evenings, we did have um, a case of, I think it was a dog that had swallowed something and needed intestinal surgery. Um, and they were coming from a little bit further away because, um, you know, they were having uh, financial issues as far as being able to afford regular vet care. And so I was able to go for the first part of the fundraiser, but then kind of came back here. And I thought I would be, I thought I would have beat them back um, and had time to change and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, apparently they, you know, when they pulled up in the parking lot, 
uh, asking if I was a vet. I was like, the only thing I didn't have was the dog hat on, and I was like, uh, yep. And uh, they were like, okay, well, we're here with the dog. And the funny thing to me was just the fact that they, through the entire time, um, even like checking the dog in and talking about what was going on, I don't know if they were too scared to ask or they just never really asked why the vet was meeting them in a parking lot in a giant dog costume dressed as Cupid. Um, and um, that really shows, I guess, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, you have trust in, in the community that, you know, they don't bat an eye at it. And um, fortunately, everything went well with the surgery. The dog did okay um, with all that. But, uh, yeah, those are kind of like the funny things that you you don't expect to happen. and. Um, you know, I was wondering what was going to get happen. A cop pulled me over that night, um, driving back. I mean, it's a little hard to explain yourself out of that one, but, uh, so yeah, you know, these are kind of fun things that, that happen that, uh, you know, make good stories later on. That you have to get something like that on video next time. <laughs> we are doing, From start um, to finish. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're we work. I'm trying to work more video stuff, and it's hard because I do a lot of the stuff, so then trying to get somebody to video it is a little bit harder. Um, but we are doing something at the pantry coming up on May 9th. Um, it's kind of like a virtual pajama party. Um, so uh, we're going to try. We're still working the slight logistics out of it, but we think we've got it all figured out where people can all just sign on. And, you know, for a couple hours on Saturday, we're going to have some, you know, raffles and trivia and stuff going on and, Everybody will be in their pajamas, and we'll be having contests for the best, uh, you know, looking pajamas, the best pets in pajamas, uh, things like that. So, uh, you know, that can be all be found on our website um, or our Facebook page. And, um, you know, the, the running gag with that is I asked um, friends and public, okay, what type of um, pajamas or onesie or whatever would you like to see me in? And for some reason, the the choice was um, basically what Ralphie got as a Christmas present in A Christmas Story, so the pink bunny pajamas. Um, and he actually found them um, for adults, so I will be wearing those as well as um, uh, I think there's an, a set of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh pajamas coming my way too. That So I'll be in multiple costumes that evening. But it should be a lot of fun and, and hopefully raise some good money for the pantry. Yeah, that'll be good. I also, uh, I remember sending you the uh, Easter Bunny in the French Quarter sabering the champagne. Yep. From station to station. And uh, that is something I remember, I remember seeing that. And uh, like I said, I don't know if I know. the country would let me play with a saber that way, but it is something <laughs> interesting to consider, uh, you know, next year around Easter time. I did like that. That was kind of, that I, was really well done. I, I think your your response was, I'm not sure about their position on me having sharp objects. Yeah, and that, that's kind of like the running gag here at the pantry, too. Um, they won't let, aside from surgery, they really won't let me do anything because they're scared of me hurting myself. So, um, And that all stemmed right. from me blowing my knee out just stepping off a step stool like five or six years ago. And so... Uh, they, uh, they're, uh, yeah, any, anything that comes up there, they want to make sure that um, somebody else handles it and not me for fear of me, uh, I guess, causing more bodily harm to myself. Well, yeah, you need to find somebody then to, you know, to step in for you and do that stuff. Yeah, I, I got to I gotta work on it. And then it. you can video it. Yep. <laughs> and we did do that. Um, we, it's hard to get sometimes people to... It's really weird, and I know this goes a little off topic, you know, of what we're talking about, but it's 
people that act as mascots or things like that, until you do it, it's it's a very weird type of scenario. So, like you, I, like I know what my mannerisms would be like and things like that. But and that's almost sometimes what people come to expect. But when somebody else dons the costume, they're going to do things a little bit differently and interact a little differently. And it's it's hard sometimes when you've kind of created the character and then you see somebody else working with it, and it's like, oh, I wouldn't have done that, or I would have done this different, and. Um, so it, it, sometimes there's a little bit of, uh, you know, like pride of pride of authorship with it, where it's like, yeah, somebody else could do it, mm-hmm. but I kind of still want to be the one to, to do most of it. Right. And then there's also somebody expecting you to be there and then turn around and there you are in a suit. Who's that? Yep. <laughs> so... It's uh, it, sometimes it's almost like a Superman thing, you know. It's like Clark Kent is never around when Superman is, and uh-huh. uh huh. You know, but a lot of people do eventually realize that it's me, you know, in there. Um, either just from realizing that I'm not there, or just realizing that, or somebody tells them, you know, it's like, oh yeah, and Arvette also does this stuff. Right. So well, and you you really have you've gone above and beyond to help you know, your various organizations and my hat's off to you if I will. Oh, thank you. I I really appreciate that. You know, every, we all work hard and um, we try Like I said, in, in today's world of fundraising, you've got to try to come up with new and interesting things because uh, that's usually what at least attracts people, even if it's only for one time. Um, there's so many people trying to get donation dollars now. It's uh, we, we try mm-hmm. to have some fun with it. And it's, it serves as like a nice mental break for everybody in the profession too because uh, it's it's not easy work and it can be very stressful a lot of the time. Um, so doing things like that just kind of helps everybody relax and cut loose a little bit and and you know just just have some fun and remember the enjoyable parts of things too. Right, right. All right. Well, I'm glad we finally got to talk about that because I've been wanting to talk about your your charity work. Um, I would have loved to talk to Mr. Amo about the different things Sorafan and and TAA have done to try to you know, raise money and raise awareness because that's the other important part is you do raise awareness about the cause. Yeah, and, and, you know, I'll say, like, between Therafan and, and also Thur, um, uh, TAA, it, it definitely, I mean, I you could, you know, maybe a thousand percent increase in awareness over the last, I would say, 10 or 15 years really on, um, you know, thoroughbred aftercare and the importance of, of getting these horses uh, you know, second homes and second careers after the racetrack, and um, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done, and and a lot, uh, you know, a lot of ground to cover with it. But um, you know, it, it is nice to see a lot of the major outfits, racing outfits, step up in support of of, of various rescues and things like that. And um, you know, it, like I, as I said before, it's it's going to be something that's needed, you know, now more than ever um, until racing, you know, definitely can get back on track at least. Um, semi full steam as as it was before uh to to provide the the funding for a lot of these things but um you know thoroughfan really does try to do what we can um you know we're we're not a we're we're a larger organization on the on the ground on the fact that we are national but um you know we're we're still kind of in in the realm of you know really having that advocacy influence and and, um, you know, fundraising abilities and stuff, we're still working towards really building that aspect of the organization up. Mm-hmm. So, and now the the main topic, the impact of COVID-19 social distancing uh, requirements on horse racing 
uh, as I said in the intro, most tracks, horse racing was the only sport that could continue, even without spectators. Because horses, whether people can come watch or not, they need to be taken care of in the stalls. They need to be exercised every day. They need to run. You know, they need to continue doing their thing. And so a lot of tracks continued live racing for several weeks uh, up until, I guess, beginning of April, New York, I think Pennsylvania, California, and uh, or middle of March, New York, Pennsylvania, California, and Maryland, I think pretty much shut everything down. Yep, that's a pretty that's that's a pretty comprehensive list as as to the ones that uh, you know mid early mid spring um, started to to shut things down. Some by their own choice, but a lot of it was really dictated then by the health departments kind of mm-hmm. coming in and saying that they were not it, it it really varies from state to state but technically if you, if you look at the way they were labeling a lot of stuff as essential versus non-essential horse racing was technically a non-essential business um and it, it once that was kind of decided you know i think the tracks understood the need when when the first issues of COVID were going around and we were seeing all the case numbers skyrocket and things like that. Um, so that, you know, a lot of them were more than willing to, to make that sacrifice. Um, and I think it's just been really hard now to kind of get the health departments to understand that a lot of the protocols that have been set in place with a lot of these tracks, um, you know, do have worked, have worked and, and do, and will work, um, you know, in most cases. So it's, it's now I think it's a little bit a little bit of an uphill battle to just try to get those things reopened. I think in Kentucky they're pretty close. Um, it, it's just a matter I think of they nobody wants to make that final determination just yet um, on it. Uh, in Pennsylvania, I know uh, the the racing commission just met today, and uh, on that they discussed it, but they really didn't set a target date um, for a, any kind of return to racing. They're working on plans to submit to the health department as well. Um, New York, it sounds like uh, Naira hopefully will be um, looking at having racing resume without fans at Belmont maybe by the end of May, beginning of June. Um, That's kind of the date Mm -hmm. that's been tossed around. Uh, Saratoga is still a big question mark um, as far as how they're going to do that. Um, And then California, obviously that's a whole – California is a very interesting, more political thing than we think than – than really a health thing uh, going on. I mean, Santa Anita has probably set up the, the stringest protocols of anybody uh, to this. I mean, basically, it's you know, once you enter their grounds, you're on lockdown and um, right. you know, basically aren't allowed to leave. And if you do, you're not basically allowed back in until you clear quarantine again. So I can't see any I can't see any faults with their with the program they have set up. There's just a lot of people that think some of the animal rights activists have more in ear of the, the county commissioners there, um, and they're using right. COVID as, as an excuse not to basically to, to keep racing shut down. And as I understand it, that was Los Angeles County. Yep. Orange County is not as stringent, and I think Del Mar may have still been running for a while unless the, the state racing board shut it down. 
Yeah, the, the way the Del Mar was able to finish its meet and Santa Anita was running uh, part of its winter-spring meet when um, they originally went, I can't, I can't remember the exact dates, but uh, around the beginning of March, Santa Anita made the decision to run without fans present um, to keep the social distancing thing in, in effect. And then it was basically, to my understanding, it was kind of, yeah, the, the horse racing board did kind of shut down Santa Anita, but it was because of what the health department was telling them. It really, the, the California Horse Racing Board really didn't come out as the forerunner in that and say, you know, we, we need to shut this down. They were going off of what um, basically the, the, the county health department was telling them at that time. Right. And have you heard of any anybody who was working at Santa, Santa Anita, any jockeys, any uh, any backslide employees, or anybody even testing positive? Not to my knowledge. COVID-19? Um, uh, you know, and I know there have been positives that they've, they've talked about at other tracks, too. Um, I'm not aware of any uh, that I can think of off the top of my head that were positive. And, you know, like I said, they've really kind of set it out where, you know, that that's almost an island onto itself at this point, the way they have things set up. So, um, so far, I mean, everybody's been good out there. And, uh, you know, obviously they're training, uh, uh, mm-hmm. and they're just eager to race. And it's, again, it, it, it's sort of like you said, you really can't keep these horses cooped up in stalls all day. Um, they do need to go out and exercise and um, ideally race because uh, when, you keep, when you keep a horse, at, at, especially a thoroughbred, at that peak level of condition, if you don't, they're just, you know, they're uh, a powder keg of energy just needing to go. And mm-hmm. if you don't give them that outlet through, you know, training and breezing and especially racing, um, they're going to do damage to themselves in their stall. Uh, they're going to, you know, right. walls and stuff. Right. And uh, now I've read a lot of, uh, a few articles, some trainers who couldn't go to other tracks for whatever reason, uh, they went ahead and sent their horses to farms so yeah, they can be in the paddock, have time off, and, you know, not be cooped up at a track. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's uh, uh, considering the circumstances that, you know, if you're, if you're really looking at a long period of time where you're not able to race, um, that is the most ideal answer, um, you know, because you're just letting the horse be a horse at that point and, you know, uh, of course, then there's a couple of things with that. There are some of the lower-level tracks um, where the owners or the trainers, a lot of times the trainers are the owners, they don't have access to farms like that. You know, it's it's really right. the racetrack is where they are, and that's where they have to keep their horses. Some do, and some, you know, can they can put them on the farm for a period of time or find layup farms or things like that. But, um, you know, the other thing with that is you're really entering, not that there's so much of a racing season anymore, but – um, for especially in the Northeast and and uh, the Midwest and stuff, you're entering really prime racing season. Uh, you know, this is where a lot of horses right. are, you know, really geared and getting ready to go. And if you have them out on the farm, it's just going to take. You know, it's sort of like the sports players now. Uh, you, a lot of the athletes are saying, you know, when if and when they resume sports, there's almost going to have to be another training camp go through because they're just going to have to get themselves back into game condition. It's it's no different with a horse. You have to train them back into racing shape. So, uh, right going to create a little bit of a, a backlag there too i know um one horse that a lot of people are familiar with uh, monomoy girl who's down at keeneland right now uh training she's firing bullets she's ready to race there's just no races for her um and mm-hmm. a lot of us are really looking forward to her coming back this year um 
to see if she could repeat uh, how she did as a three-year-old. So, uh, you know, that's just right. one example of a, a, a bigger name horse. But, you know, at every level, there's horses like that where trainers really feel they have their horses ready to race and there's just nowhere to race them. Right. Are there, it's limited and they can only, you know, like Oak Lawn, Tampa Bay Downs, Gulfstream, they can only handle so many horses. Yeah, and, and again, you've got to, um, a lot of it goes into what they call conditions of races, too. So you're not going to see, you know, the same type of race conditions at Oak Lawn that you're going to see at, say, like a Penn National or, some, or a, you know, a, a Charlestown or something like that. Um, so a lot of it has to do with the class of the horse and, and, and what their common competition would be. So some of it is that. Some of it is the, the feasibility of shipping your horse to a location like that because um, then you have to have the staff, you know, help go with them. Um, mm-hmm. Every order, again, every state and every racetrack is, is working under different types of uh, social distancing orders or quarantine orders. So, you know, let's say you ship a horse down to Oak Lawn or whatever to run. Does that mean that your help is now forced to be, let's say if they come back to New York or something like that, your help may be on a mandatory 14-day quarantine. And so, you know, mm-hmm. that's two weeks to have your help uh, with you for, that, for, for horses. So it's it, yeah. it's a huge logistical nightmare right now um, that tracks and the industry is just trying to do the best it can to, to really work through and, and try to have as much patience as they, they have with it because, you know, again, racing is just one industry of thousands that I'm sure are banging down the, the state government's door saying we want to reopen. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so we understand there has to be a little bit of patience with that. But at the same time, you know, racing is, of, of all the sports out there, racing is probably the easiest one to reopen um, uh, with the proper protocols in place. You, you really, there's not a lot stopping uh, racing from going on because then the, the, the gambling will kind of help, you know, uh, re-up the, the economic engine that is racing. Right. Because that's one of the things that, I mean, every trainer, big, little, medium, is dealing with this loss of revenue because uh, recently on Fox Sports uh, over the weekend, Tom Amos estimated, Tom, yeah, Amos, New Orleans trainer, estimated they've lost about 30% of their revenue and he's only got that much because he has been able to ship his horses and his assistants to Oak Lawn and continue racing because fairgrounds was shut down and he can't go to Oak Lawn because if he comes from Louisiana, he has to have a mandatory 14-day quarantine. And it's like I said, because it's, we were it's a something that just a uh, bit of problem everywhere. I mean, and, and it is. It's you know, uh, mm-hmm. wagering drives up a percentage anyway of the of the purse accounts for horsemen, and you know, purses are what help you know it, it basically the the industry run. It's um, owners, you know, a lot of some owners can't afford you know to kind of keep their horses laid up, but. A lot of them, as mm-hmm. I was saying, um, you know, a lot of them, some are, are owners that are also trainers. A lot of the small, smaller-time trainers have owners that don't have super deep pockets, and, you know, they're, they, it's hard for them, uh, you know, with the economy kind of grinding to a halt for them to be able to continue to afford to, to you know, basically pay the day rates um, for horses that are not able to race. I mean, you know, it's uh, uh, the purses are kind of what drive the economic engine, and as soon as we can get back to that, the better off everything in the industry is going to be. 
And then the backside workers are affected because you have grooms, uh, hot walkers, exercise riders. You know, that's their livelihood in taking care of the horses. And the horses need the care regardless of what's going on with the rest of the world. So, but you may have a trainer who can't afford to pay you. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, again, it, it, I think a lot of people, especially either people that are not totally familiar with racing um, or just kind of like a, a fair-weather fan, for lack of a better word, they don't realize, I mean, these backstretches are literally sometimes like cities onto themselves. They, they have uh, the same infrastructure that a small town would have, um, and, and it, it's like you said, it, it's, it's these people's livelihoods. And it's, it's, it's not just, and I know some people try to term it this way, oh, well, they can just find another job somewhere else. It's, it, it's not a job to them. It's, it's a way of life. It's a passion. Um, and, and they have tremendous pride in, in the work that they do. And, I mean, they have tremendous love for these animals. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, again, it's, it's their livelihood at stake. Um, and it's not, it's not like closing down a, a printing business or something where it's like, okay, you just turn the presses off and that's it. You, you can't do that with racing. Um, and, you know, these are living animals, and you've, you've got to be able to take care of them the right way. You've got to be able to provide for them the right way. And um, having racing run uh, so that, you know, gambling can occur on it and that the, the purse accounts can be filled is, is really the only thing in the long term that's going to, you know, keep things afloat, that you can – uh, you can try to get some of the, the federal loan programs that are out there um, for your backstretch workers, but that, again, that that too is only going to go so far, and it uh, mm-hmm. it it really makes it difficult. I mean, I mean for everybody, and you know, like I said, there's there's these uh, these backstretch workers. I mean, once you really get to know them, it's like I said, it's it's a labor of love for them. It's uh, it's it is the way, obviously, right. that they they care for their families and um help put some kids through school and 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 all of that but it it really is a labor of love it's it's not just a job right and they really yes go get another job but they'd be abandoning a living breathing creature who can't feed itself who can't endorse who can't be just turned out to you know into the forest to live free you know they need to they need to have a human person meeting their needs. Oh, absolutely. Four seven. Um, you know, yeah, you, you can't just, uh, as you say, kind of just like open the stall doors and say, you know, okay, go ahead, born free. Uh, you know, thoroughbreds are not like that, um, they or standard breads for that matter, or, or you know, quarter horses, whatever you may be racing. Um, it's it's a case of where you know these horses they they are very set in their routines they're very much creatures of habit and they are from from the time they're born they're used to humans handling them um, uh, and you know they rely on that that care and, and you know it's like you said you you can't just abandon that you know and, and shut that all down and expect everything to to continue to work it doesn't work that way and that's that's where a lot of the education that we're really trying to do comes in you know with educating a lot of these government. Um, uh, uh, supervisors and, and just trying to really show them that this is hurting so many people. I mean, and, and the whole, the, the pandemic obviously is hurting the world population. We're not, we're not, we're not denying that or, or downplaying that in any way. But, um, you know, when, when you have certain groups that are saying coming in and they're saying, oh, we'll just shut down racing anyway, see, it, you know, it's, you can't, you, like I said, you can't just switch the light off. It doesn't work that way. And, mm-hmm. um, 
and uh, you, you have to be able to look after these horses and, and, and let them do what they were bred to do, which is run. Right. Totally agree with you there. Um, and that would make it essential because of the element of the the horses needing 24-7 care. As much as we need grocery stores and you know drug stores and those kind of things, it's an analogous situation. The horses need a person who's going to feed them, walk them, exercise them, and take care of them 24-7. Oh, yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree. And I would argue that it's essential um, from that standpoint. And I think it's, it's you know, uh, again, it's where uh, I think some of the disconnect with, with certain people or politicians is that, they think that well, they're still being taken care of even if they're not racing, and it's they don't they don't understand all the cogs in the wheel that have to work for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's just on the again in the long term, that's just not going to be an acceptable thing for racing or for the horses or for the people that care for them. Right, and there's a potential, especially you know the smaller tracks that don't have the. Um, uh, Notoriety like Churchill Downs, Oaklawn, Fairgrounds, Belmont, uh, that those tracks could actually go under from the loss of revenue from spectators, the loss of revenue from betting, uh, wagering, the loss of revenue from having trainers there with their horses. Yeah, and and I think another area that a lot of people, you know, and and this has, of course, come up a lot of places, but a lot of tracks through various agreements, and every state's a little different on how they set their agreements up, but, you know, a slot machine and casino revenue provides a good chunk for a lot of places into the purse accounts for these horsemen. And, you know, if you're talking about social distancing and trying to keep everything in check, I can guarantee you that casinos are going to be one of the last things that are going to open up. Um, right. You know, and they may not open up until you get a vaccine. I mean, uh, depending on what state you're in, uh, and so that affects the, the the purse accounts for these racetracks too. It's um, uh, which makes things sometimes even harder. Like even if you do open back up, well, then that much more more that much more money has to come from just gambling on the races themselves. Because if there's no money coming through the casinos, everything's based on a percentage of, of um, revenue that the casinos pull in. So if they're pulling in zero, you know, zero, you know, 20% of zero is still zero or whatever you're, you know, figuring it out to be. Um, so that's going to be another big thing with some of these smaller time tracks too, is uh, some of them may not survive. Um, and there's, there's arguments among the industry if, if there already are too many tracks and consolidation is kind of needed. Um, and you're going to, I mean, that's just as fervent an argument as Lasix is. I mean, you're going to have pro and, and con for it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very uh, interesting topic and, a, and something that maybe COVID has kind of forced into the, the discussion with, with racing. Um, but it, it, I would not be surprised if this thing really drags out if you end up losing 5% of the tracks that are out there um, just because it's just not, they just will not economically be able to survive. It's, right. Yeah. It's not going to be economically feasible for them to reopen once they can. Yeah. And so you're just going to, yeah, and again, you know, it goes to some people are saying there needs to be a consolidation 
I mean, our contraction of the sport a little bit. I, I mean, I tend to agree with that personally, but um, I don't know if due to COVID and, and the, 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 um, the implications of that is the exact type of contraction that everybody was looking at or talking about. So uh, it's going to have an effect, um, uh, I think, definitely both on the full crops and um, on, on race-ready horses once racing resumes. So that's gonna, it's going to be very interesting to see what some of these field sizes look like at some of these smaller tracks when, um, when and if they do get the green light to start racing again. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a quick break, um, and then we'll get into whether 2020, the Triple Crown will be the Triple Crown, considering the fact that we may have the Belmont Stakes that could potentially be run in June without the Kentucky Derby and Preakness Stakes having been run yet. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien. We'll be right back after this. Every Monday night, join Sean Castleberry, Daniel Williamson, and Brad Hicks as they bring you the Fuck It, We'll Do It Live show. Ladies and gentlemen, this show will bring you a unique perspective on everything that is pop culture and everything that is relevant in the news today. That is the Fuck It, We'll Do It Live show, live 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, only on Talk Radio 49. Then it got a little crazy, it got a little hazy, and the cops said there's something wrong here. Oh, here, kid, kid. Mama's got some treats. Michael Carnahan here with Talk Radio 49, and listening to your favorite podcast on the go has never, ever been any easier. If you're an iPhone user, to subscribe to us on iTunes, all you have to do is search out Talk Radio 490. Go ahead and throw us a subscribe. Also, if you'd like the F It We'll Do It Live show and you want to watch on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe. F It We'll Do It Live show. Hit that subscribe button and hit that notification bell, and you'll be notified whenever a new show pops up. Ladies and gentlemen, coming soon we will have new YouTube pages for Clear and Convincing and ASWF Aftermath as well. Once again, it's never, ever been any more simple to find Talk Radio 49 content at your leisure.
every Tuesday night. Join Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien live here on Talk Radio 49 for the Clear and Convincing Show. At 8 p.m. Central Standard Time on Tuesday nights, Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien look at the most infamous cases in this country's history, not from the court of public opinion, but from the eyes of the court. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the Clear and Convincing Show, live only on Talk Radio 49 and blogtalkradio.com. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one, first degree murder, guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been a wrong time. I'd have said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good evening. This is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdicts. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. All right, and we're back. Yes, ma'am, we are, and definitely keep your eye out. Once again, I do want to give an update on that. Uh, listening options, we do now all of our shows are slowly but surely getting added to YouTube. Uh, so definitely that's another option. If you want to listen uh, while you work or what have you, definitely feel free to go and listen to us on YouTube. Yes, Clear and Convincing Podcast. That is correct. Okay. All right, Dr. Right. Langlois. Uh, 2020. Will we even have a chance for a triple crown? Um, my gut tells me yes. Um, what order that triple crown will be in um, is anybody's guess right now. Uh, we do know, obviously, that the Derby has been moved to September 5th. Um, mm-hmm. We know that the Preakness is going to be moved to a yet-to-be-determined date, they've been floating around. Obviously, if they followed the same pattern of two weeks after the Derby, they've been floating around uh, September 19th as a possible date for the Preakness. Uh, I think what is holding up a lot of that or where the the kink and the logistics is, is NBC has the right to the Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont. Um, right. The Triple Crown is interesting for view, for people that don't know this. The Triple Crown is interesting in that it, there really is no organization that is the Triple Crown. Um, the only thing that really the Triple Crown, if you were to consider it an entity, 
focuses on is basically nominating your horse to the series. Um, other than that, they really have no control over what is done with the Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont. So there's no like national Triple Crown organization or anything like that, and which is why going back oh maybe 10, 15 years, you saw like the first two legs, the Derby and the Preakness, were televised by NBC, and then ABC picked up the Belmont stakes. So it's they don't mm-hmm. always the package deal, and so. But NBC has locked up the rights for the foreseeable future. And the problem with running these races in the fall is that is when college football goes on, and NBC also has the rights and has to um, broadcast Notre Dame football games. Um, Right. So we think, and of course this is all speculation, nobody really knows for sure, that the reason they haven't been able to iron down a date for the Preakness yet is because they're trying to figure stuff out with NBC. if it could potentially be, um, you know, televised in the fall or not. Um, I have heard some rumors in regards to the fact that college football may not really start up with games until much later in the fall or the winter as it is now um, because of the whole concerns with COVID. So that might free up some space to do it. Um, And then logically, if if the Belmont followed suit, you would see the Belmont run – on, I believe that would be October 5th or 6th or whatever that weekend is, um, around that time frame. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of questions as to if that, that schedule is feasible um, uh, for reasons of then backing up into the Breeders' Cup, which happens only a month after that. Um, so would horses have enough, three-year-olds have enough time if they contested the Triple Crown in the fall to then be ready for the Breeders' Cup as well? Um, nobody really knows. <clears throat> there still is a chance that, although my gut is telling me this won't happen, there still is a chance that the Belmont will go off as planned on June 6th. Um, uh, there's a lot of it, though, that question, how would you, if there's no other racing really leading up to that, how would you get your three-year-olds ready to go a mile and a half off basically almost no prep races? So, um, you know, that that's another thing that kind of pops into the, to the mix of it, too. Um you know, as as some people know, there is precedent for the series not being run in that exact order of, of Derby, Preakness, Belmont. There have been a couple where the Preakness has been run before the Derby. Uh, the time frames have been spread out differently across the years. Um, it has not always been over a five-week span. Sometimes it's been oh, okay. a shorter, sometimes it's been longer. Um, so really, uh, we're all hoping that it will be in, in some form or another. Uh, what form that takes Aside from at least right now, knowing the Derby is on September fifth, nobody nobody really knows. It's uh, it's a little bit of a mystery. I do hope though that you know it will it will continue in some form. I can't personally. I can't really see the Belmont being run before the other two legs though. Um, you know, I, I just it, it, I just think it would take too much potentially out of a horse um, to then ask them to come back. You know, in three weeks to run a mile and a quarter or a mile and three sixteenths right after that. Um, and sometimes horses, that, you know, that point for the Belmont are different types of uh, different athletic type of horse than that would point for the Derby or the Preakness. Right, right. And you know, how do how do horses Belmont doesn't use a point system? Is it an earnings system? I believe they do go off an earnings, a graded stakes earnings system. I'm trying to think back quick off the top of my head. I don't think there's a time that I can remember recently where the Belmont field was overdrawn. Um, I think they've always right. gotten right around 
for, you know, if it's been a non-triple crown year and it, it's kind of a mishmash of three-year-olds, I, you know, the, the field size does go up to 13, 14 horses. I don't think it's ever been oversubscribed, and I could be wrong on that. Um, but if it was, to my knowledge, yeah, it goes off of graded earnings uh, in stakes races. Okay. So, and that could be another problem with the uh, suspension of, of some tracks and horses not racing. They're not racing in stakes races because there aren't as many available, so they're not making the earnings. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, that's true, but one thing to remember with that, too, is, I mean, you know, graded can be grade one, grade two, grade three. So um, that's not to say that there wouldn't be probably enough maybe more minor graded stakes races where they still could accumulate some earnings. Um, But uh, most people, I mean, you know, what's interesting about the Belmont as compared to, let's say, the Derby, uh, is one, the point system, but even for owners, you know, everybody wants to win the Derby. Um, you know, that's everybody's goal. Mm-hmm. They all point for it, even if they think a horse, they have a horse that may not be really suited to the Derby distance. Um, if they can still get in, they're probably going to run. Not completely that way with the Belmont. Belmont, you you know, unless you're going for the Triple Crown or something, you really have to have a horse that wants to go that mile and a half. Um, and so you don't see as many uh you know, owners or trainers lining up their horse and saying, you know, oh, this is this is uh, I'm pointing for the Belmont with this horse and nothing else. Some some do if you get the right combination of breeding and, and, and athleticism. But um, so I don't think you're going to have that same press to to try to get to the Belmont if for some reason it still is run, um, you know, in June or July and happens to take place before the other two legs. It's uh, uh, I, I don't think you're going to have that same push of everybody trying to make that race. Right. I don't either, and probably the only one that's really going to push is the one who wins Belmont. Yep, probably. Uh, and then, you know, the, and then, to go on and then and, the Derby and the State and Preakness are going to be a cakewalk. Pretty much. Uh, well, you would hope that, but it's you know we're stranger things have happened. I mean, the one thing, if, if you look at it from a a uh, historical standpoint, and Let's say, for, let's say hypothetically the races are, are run in reverse order. So you have the Belmont, then the Preakness, then the, the Derby. And people have to remember the Derby is still going to be a 20-horse field. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's not like horses maybe going for the Triple Crown and the Belmont where maybe, you know, at most they're facing nine or ten other rivals. I mean, they'll be facing 19 other horses, and uh, we've all seen what happens, you know, just a little bit of traffic trouble in those races. The, the Derby is not always – usually won by the, the best horse. It's it's the the luckiest horse, the horse that gets the trip. So um, right, right. some would argue that, well, if if they win the Belmont and then come back and win the Preakness and then navigate their way through the Derby, yeah, that's probably a, a pretty deserving uh, Triple Crown winner right there. So, well, that'll be interesting to see how that shapes up. Yeah, we we, we really and don't. And, and, you know, I've followed Twitter and, and, and some of the, the people that have at least a little bit of inside knowledge and – I'm still seeing rumors flashing that are kind of all over the board. Uh, some have, you know, said that the Belmonts, you know, they, they're going to postpone it, but they don't have a date yet. Others have said they're looking, you know, well, well, I've heard that July 4th weekend they're going to potentially try to run the Belmont. Um, or they're going to, you know, I've heard crazy, crazy things like, well, let's run the Belmont up at Saratoga during the Saratoga meet, you know, and um, to, to, to try to even things out. It's, I really just, I have no idea. Um, and I don't think anybody except for Naira really knows what they're planning to do. And hopefully they'll be, I, they're supposed to be announcing that soon, um, what their decision regarding the Belmont is. Okay. Well, I guess we'll just keep a, 
I'll keep an ear out as well to see what they uh, what they end up doing. It's a it's a very metaphysical, um, philosophical discussion. Yep, with uh, you know with that, and then and it's, like I said, the, I think the real logistical kink is what what can they do to work with NBC and and how can they make it fit with NBC's schedule? So I, I think that's really going to be the determining factor in a lot of this as compared to spacing when they really want to run it. Right. All right. Um, now, I have a question for you. As an, you know, I'm an amateur handicapper, very amateur, because sometimes I go by trainer, I go by sire, I go by dam, uh, I go by prettiest horse. <laughs> so with, uh, with handicapping, one of the things I've always wondered is, is there a difference handicapping, ha- handicapping a maiden allowance or claiming race versus handicapping a stakes race? I know the class of horses is, is varied, but is there a difference in how you would handicap the different levels of race? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I may not be the best one to ask that because, you know, I've I've joked with people like I couldn't pick the winner in a walkover these days. But um, it's um, to me anyway. I, I think for at least the higher grade stakes races, so like the grade one, grade twos, I think you have a you have a more general idea of how good the horses that are going in those those are. Um, either they faced each other before, or they're a little bit more well known. Um, so you have a little bit more of a, a general idea of their, their quality. When you start getting down into the, um, uh, the maiden and the claiming races, uh, especially if you go to a lower level, sometimes it's just, um, you know, you, sometimes you look for patterns. Uh, you look for does this horse tend to run well every third race or something like that if it's a claiming race or under certain conditions where they're dropping maybe in claiming uh, uh price or they're they're changing to a distance that they prefer more um in maiden races it kind of just depends if it's if it's a true like maiden baby race like a two-year-old maiden race um you really nowadays they have clocker reports that you can get through like daily racing forum that you know give very good detailed honest opinions of how these horses are working um you know if, if you're a real pedigree guru you you start looking at you know who the the sire and dam of those those maidens are did they, you know, does that maiden have siblings that ran very well first time out or ran well under those conditions? Uh, so it, I think probably handicapping the uh, maiden claiming, even maybe allowance races to some degree or the, the starter handicaps, probably take a little bit more time because you have to delve through a little bit more data. Usually they're horses that have run, you know, uh, have, have had many more starts than um uh, your top-tiered stake sources. So um, for me personally, it, it, it just kind of depends on uh, how much time I have to, to, to look at the race. But um, uh, if you really, really want to get good at, at um, you know, like the, the claiming and, and main races or the lower-level type of races that are out there, you really have to just do your homework on that particular track. Um, and you, you know, study the, the way the track's playing, study the way these horses run at that particular track because a lot of them show up every couple of weeks. So um, you, have, you have a pretty good idea of, of, of what their form is. Um, whereas, you know, with a, with a high-level stakes race and maybe four months between starts for, for those horses. But uh, the lower-level 
you know, races. And again, for me, it's I, I look for more pattern consistency and things like that. But um, everybody has their own data metrics now that they can push through. Be it DRF Formulator is a really good program, or um, uh, Equibase has one, and the name escapes me off the top of my head, but um, uh, they have one as well. Uh, that, that can speak, you know, uh, you can look at that data any way you want the computer to, and, and there's people that swear by it, and then there's people that, you know, just go to the track and say, ooh, that jockey's wearing purple, I'm going to bet on that horse, and you know, three, hours, <laughs> three hours of my handicapping is out the window, because that's the one that wins, so. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of on the, you know, I like the, if I like the fire, I, I want the babies to win. If I like yeah, the I'll, I'll look for that too. I mean, and it's more of a sentimental thing for me, but um, you know, like some of the horses, you know, that I really fell in love with growing up um, were horses like Easy Goer, Strike the Gold, Seeking the Gold. Um, a lot of the fifth horses. Um, more recently, uh, you know, horses like Blame or Orb, um, Honor Code uh, have been some of my favorites. So. Uh, uh, you know, th- those I'll, I'll definitely usually, you know, even if I don't think they may stack up quite as well talent-wise, I'll usually still put a couple of bucks on them just for, for sentimental reasons. Right, right. Yeah, I'm like that with the American Pharaohs, although his three-year-olds don't seem to be lighting up the the tracks the way they did his two-year-olds. No, and, and that's and, – and, I think what's going to be really interesting to see that see on that is is that a function of the fact that he is just siring very precocious two year olds, or because of everything that's happened, you're you're just not seeing enough races for three year olds right now across the country that, that you know that they can really point for. Um, yeah. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to see. Some sires are like that. They're they're very um, they sire very very good precocious two year olds, but then as those horses mature. It's kind of like the rest of the class or the rest of the crop catches up to them, so they're they're not as dominant as they were, um, you know, as two year olds. Uh, it's it's going to be very right. interesting to see, um, you know, how all that plays out, and it may be hard if if a lot of tracks aren't able to open up fully. Um, you you may not get a good enough representative sample this uh, this year to to make any kind of determination. Right. It's also interesting to see that he seems to. Uh, Sire very very good grass horses, which um, you know he, mm-hmm. he never raced on grass uh, at all in his career. So uh, that that's very interesting too. That um, you know, and that's that's one of those things that sometimes uh, you know you you look back through sire patterns and, and lines. Uh, it, it's something that just doesn't. I mean, some sire or breeding experts might say, oh yeah, no, that, that we knew that all along. But um, I, I mean, you look at probably one of the most famous horses everybody knows, Secretariat. Um, he was never really considered that great of a sire. I mean, he did have Risen Star and Lady Secret, but he was actually considered an amazing what they and a, and a great what they call dam sire. So um, uh, right. he he was a sire of females that actually turned out to be really really good um, dams for future horses down the line. But you know, nobody really looks. You know, everybody just wanted Secretariat to basically reproduce himself, and you know that just was not going to happen. Right. Yeah, American Pharaoh is reproducing himself to a degree. He is throwing plain brown, fast horses. Yep. <laughs> so, um, but it's, it's also but, interesting uh, to look at if you look at some of the, you know, and and um, at least if the Derby would have been this Saturday, the horses that probably would have made the gate, um, 
all that. I don't recall that many, if any, would have been actually sired by Pharaoh. Um, and, yeah. and again, that's hard to say because, again, all the stakes race, you know, the, the whole system got shifted. But, um, right. you know, you're not seeing, you know, it's not like the top three horses are, you know, or the top five or three of them are sired by American Sour or something. You're still seeing the Curlins, the Tappets, um, you know, some of the others right. that have a little bit more um, long-term influence. So uh, and it's, it's going to be interesting to see actually how his two-year-olds also do this year. So is it was it just a one-year thing where he happened to throw a really good two-year-olds last year, or is it going to be something that's going to continue? And, um, you know, because sometimes you run into those types of sires too. They have a one really good crop, and that's it. And the, the rest of the crops just don't seem to – that up. I mean, I'm hoping that's not the case because he was, you know, a very sound horse and he, he seems to be tiring very sound horses. So, um, you know, you, you definitely right. need more of that in, in, in the bloodlines of thoroughbreds right now. And I haven't even seen any two-year-olds yet this year. No, I guess been... they don't start until late summer. No, actually, they, they have run a couple of two-year-old races down at Gulfstream. Um, okay. I think one other track I can't remember which one. Normally, this time of year, Keeneland is very is known for you know really starting off the baby races, um, and they're usually only four four long four four and a half four long races. Um, uh, they're not very long at all, and they usually are designed for those more precocious two year olds that tend to kind of come up, be really ready to run, but don't really amount to anything later on down the road as far as like stakes caliber horses every now and then you get one but mm-hmm. um this is really for more of the horses that, again that have the, you know kind of understood everything or are kind of ahead of the game in training and a lot of the owners and trainers you know they look to try to you know make their money with these horses at, at this time when the before the rest of the crop kind of catches up or the races start getting a little longer where you know they're just not quite as effective um, Wesley Ward is a trainer who was known for, for having, for being, for being that type of trainer, um, at least partially, uh, with really precocious two-year-olds and, uh, you know, basically ruling the, the, the Keeneland meet when it came to two-year-olds and stuff like that. And I, I don't think he's had the same type of success down at Gulfstream, at least in the first couple of races that I've seen down there. Okay. All right. I, I spend my Saturdays and Sundays watching Fox Sports one or two because they, they show uh, they've been showing Oak Lawn and and Tampa Bay Downs. Yep. Yeah, and I don't I don't uh, think there's been any to mind. And again, I'd have to look, but I don't think there's been any two year old races at Tampa Bay or Oak Lawn yet. Right, and that may be also later in the summer because that seems like last year they really pick up, you know, after uh, the juvenile rela- races at. Uh, Churchill Downs, Kentucky Derby. Yeah, and, um, and then they start picking up then. Yeah, and yeah, so it's usually you don't see a ton of them, and it's it, really, I mean, the, the real baby rate. The, the, when you're looking for the real top class two-year-olds, usually you don't see them kind of emerge on the scene until late July, August. Um, you know, the Saratoga Meet or Ellis Park is are big places to kind of debut them. Maybe out at Del Mar. Um, and then, you know, a, a little bit through the fall. But what's, what's interesting this year with the two-year-olds is, um, one, most of the tracks that have signed on to this, so a lot of the bigger tracks anyway, um, no two-year-old is going to be allowed to run with Lasix this year um, at these bigger tracks. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And 
Um, the other rule that was put in place is they, they are not allowed to make their first start as a two-year-old until they are actually, um, by their birth date, two years old. Um, so you could have, you know, in years past, you could have, let's say, if, if you were running um, at Keeneland now, so we're in April, so mid-April, um, you could be running in a baby, a two-year-old baby race with a horse that technically wasn't born until June the year before. So they're, they're really not even a full two years old yet. Um, so right. they, they changed that rule at a lot of the jurisdictions to make it so that these horses are at least, you know, biologically two years Chronologically old. Chronologically two, right. Yeah, instead of just going off the January 1st date, um, which probably hopefully will, will lead to some safer racing. Yeah, I I think that's a good idea. I think that is a good change because most most of the babies are born January, February, March, and then sometimes you have the later April, May, June babies, but you know, a majority of them are born January, February, March. Yeah, that's that's usually the, that's at least the time they aim for, um, just based on the gestation of the horse, which is about eleven months. So that's usually mm-hmm. the time frame they aim for to try to get them. They, they, they ideally want the horse to be born as close to January 1st as possible. Um, right. you know, just a kind of advantage, but, um, every, every couple of years you, you read about the Derby winner. Um, I think this was the case with maximum security, even last year, um, where he technically wasn't even three biologically, um, when he won the Derby, cause he was a late May full. So, um, right. and you do see that from time to time, some of these horses that, you know, they technically are, are winning the Derby as two year olds cause they haven't reached their third birthday yet. Right. So, well, that'll be an interesting change. I'll, I'll have to keep an eye on that and see how that works. Um, but once you get into July, August, it won't matter. No, not really. I mean, they're all they're all biologically going to be two year olds there, but I do use that sometimes as a um, as a handicapping angle. So if you've got you know mm-hmm. a bunch of horses that were all born, say you know later on, so Mar- you know April or something like March, April, and you've got a couple of names that were born in January, sometimes that two months when you're talking about baby races really does mean a lot. You know, it's it's uh, that's two months that's two more months maturity time. Um, for mm-hmm. them to, to them to come up. So sometimes I do look at that as a little bit of a handicapping angle. Um, if they're very early foals, they might have a little bit of just a, a, a body build or body growth edge um, as compared to some of the other two-year-olds. Okay. All right. And we're the first Saturday in May, NBC, in a an effort to keep us all happy, uh, they are going to be holding a uh, Kentucky Derby event and broadcasting it for everyone at home. Uh, first, they're going to be rerunning the 2015 Kentucky Derby. Spoiler alert, American Pharaoh wins. <laughs> there's no, there's no like, then, you know, alternate ending to this one or, or anything like that. So. No. Oh, well, Alternate Universe would be funny, uh, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. So, uh, But then they're also going to have a virtual Kentucky Derby. Uh, they're going to be one of many, and it is going to be for uh, charity benefiting uh, COVID, COVID-19 emergency relief efforts. Yeah, and it, it's really and, it's- – 
it's kind of interesting the way they have this set up. I'm, I'm actually very curious to see how this plays out. Yeah, because it's going to be the 13 Triple Crown winners. And they have, it's going to be a computer-generated race. And there's going to be a bunch of statistics, times, conditions, factored in to see who who would win a race among these 12, uh, among these 13 triple crown winners. That is going to be fascinating. My money's on secretariat, Seattle slew and affirmed because they ran the three fastest Kentucky derbies. Yeah. And you know, again, I yeah, if you just kind of look at time, straight time, uh, yeah, secretary technically should win. I mean, he probably should win just on the fact of, you know, again, he arguably the greatest racehorse that ever lived. Um, but to me, it, it, it's it, it's interesting because you know you you talk to a lot of different people about comparing who was best, and you know, and there's a lot of uh, maybe more traditionalists, but also people that really study the game say it, it, it's almost impossible to compare horses of different eras. Um, just because the game has the, the sport has changed and, and and the horses have changed, so you know no matter what kind of data metrics you put in, and I, I mean I have no idea what kind of system they're using for this, or you know, or or what what tangibles they're looking at more versus others. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I, I I still always thought you couldn't you you couldn't compare, hor- you know, uh, a horse like War Admiral, you know, to Seattle Slough. I you know it's. Uh, you know, both of them are, are front-end running horses, and both of them were dead game and, and didn't want to lose. Um, but could you really compare them? Because they they raced in such different eras, could you really compare them? Um, uh, hopefully this will um, this will be, uh, you know, a, a fun thing to watch and, and you know, maybe spark some uh, debate among people. And if it, it brings – the other hope I have for it is that if it brings – some new fans into the game who who want to learn more about some of these historical horses. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. everybody knows Secretariat. Everybody knows, most people know Affirmed because of Affirmed and Alidar. Um, but do they know the story of Assault, who, who won the Triple Crown and, you know, did it while running on a hoof that was completely deformed um, right. for his entire life? Uh, things like that. Do, do they know that, you know, <clears throat> that Gallant Fox, uh, was the only horse to sire a Triple Crown winner, um, you know, in Omaha, things like that. Um, right. You know, do, do they know that Sir Barton technically won the Triple Crown before it was known as the Triple Crown? Um, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, things like that. So it's 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 certainly going to be fun, and I'm sure that, you know, you're going to see a lot of newer people, and I, you know, if, if there was actual betting on it, um you know, I would actually wager that either American Pharaoh or Justify is going to go off at a fa- as a favorite over Secretariat, just because of the more name recognition recently with those those horses. But, um, you know, I, I was talking to my dad about this too, who's a huge racing fan, and got me involved in it. And um, you know, he said, you know, the other thing to look at is, you know, somebody's going to finish last in this race, and you know, you mm-hmm. you just hope that when this computer generation thing, it's not some horse that finishes, you know, forty lengths behind the winner or something like that. That it's you know, a right. competitive race and, you know, shows the true ability of, of each horse. And, um, but yeah, I, I think on pure talent alone, uh, I, I, I just don't think you're going to find somebody that's going to be secretary. I think it's going to be really close. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but you know, I would see it as more like a se- I, I would see it as maybe like a secretariat, um, uh, American Pharaoh um, uh, affirmed, or actually, I'd probably put Slu ahead of affirmed. Um, yeah, I think Slu was actually the better horse, um, and then maybe somebody like you know Citation or Whirlaway, you know, right in there with them. It's uh, um, you know, I don't. I, again, I have no idea what metrics they're going to go off of, but I don't really think Justify mm-hmm. would finish that high in a race like that. Um, uh, you know, and and I think you'll see uh, you know other horses like you know Sir Barton and Assault towards the towards the back of the field. But uh, it's it's going to be really interesting to to see how they do it, and hopefully, will spark a lot of debate. Um, you yeah. know, and, and fun debate too. You know, in it uh, as far as who who people like, and and again, it is all for a really good cause. Uh, you know, for COVID relief for the for the for the racing industry. So, right, and you got to wonder how much the people that are doing the programming know because uh, Sir Barton and the first Triple Crown winners, probably maybe even up to Secretariat or Citation, there were no starting gates. Yeah, that's true. I think. I, so I want to see a programmer have some horses throwing hissy fits. Yeah, because <laughs> when they come to and, the and, gate, and, and I'm trying to think. I can't. I almost want to say Citation was the first one that broke from a gate, a true mechanical gate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but before that, yeah, you had horses like War Admiral that would hold up starts for eight, ten, twelve minutes because they couldn't get them lined up right, and um, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Uh, there's one other, I think, that that also did that too. But yeah, no, it is interesting, um, you know, to, to to see how that uh, that will play out, and um, you know, and nobody, I don't know how this this computer program is going to work either. So are they are actually going to be breaking from a gate, or are they just all going to be breaking in a line like the Grand National, and um, uh, you know, and and running that way? Um, and uh, you don't know what data data metrics they're they're going to put in there. And it is true. I mean, the programmers probably don't. You know, and I don't think they can factor in personal favoritism if they're going straight off data. So, um, right, might get a surprise. I mean, you know, depending on what what they're factoring in in their data analysis, who knows? Maybe Assault mm-hmm. does win the the Derby of all the Triple Crown winners for some strange, ano- uh, you know, anomaly that's in in the data programs that they put in. But uh, um, I'd I'd have a better chance probably of riding the Derby winner than that actually happening. So, <laughs> so well. For those of you that are interested, um, they are offering a, a grand prize, I guess, to go in September to Kentucky Derby 146. Yep. That's going to be like so the that, grand prize. Really, I think it's, um, if I remember right, I think it's everybody who picks the, the winning course is entered into a random drawing for that. So that'll be a VIP experience that, um, you know, definitely, you know, I've only been to Churchill once. That was for the Breeders' Cup two years ago. Um, but uh, I can't imagine what it must be like there on Derby Day. It's uh, you know one of one of my bucket list items one of these years. Mine, mine too. And for those of you interested, go to www.kentuckyderby.com uh, beginning on April 30th, which is Thursday, and you can choose your favorite horse to win the virtual race and join Churchill Downs' efforts in making a charitable charitable donation to COVID-19 relief efforts. More information, of course, can be found at KentuckyDerby.com. So um, that is, it's going to be interesting. There are a few others. HRRN 
has uh, apparently a virtual derby among various derby winners, including American Pharaoh's Secretariat and uh, Barbaro's another one, who's a sentimental favorite. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and, and yeah, it kind of goes to, I mean, you know, you could, you know, run. And actually, it's one thing that's that's happened with, um, you know, obviously racing being shuttered in a lot of parts of the country. It has actually raised a lot more of these discussions of, you know, it, which horse would you pick if, if all these horses were running in one race? And there's so many, so many variables that go into it, but um you know, uh, I, I think I think another one is uh, Northern Dancer that they have in that one. Um, yeah. Uh, that Daytar Ernest. So that's one that you know w- would he prove to be better than than all of them? You just you, you just don't know, and um, it, it makes for some really good really good discussion and you know um, good storytelling if people were actually at those races or, or saw those horses run. Um, and you know, fun debates of you know the, the way track people are all the time. It's uh, you know. Uh, if you're stuck with your opinion, everybody else is wrong, no matter what, uh, uh, no matter what they may say or show you. So, uh, um, right. Uh, oh, we almost should see more of that stuff done. Hopefully, hopefully that'll continue because um, I, I do think it is a way to bring in um, new fans in a way that is, uh, you know, kind of more technologically geared towards things that they can get behind and follow and, and learn more about the game from and stuff like that. Um, and then hopefully transfer that over to, you know, uh, understanding the game, uh, you know, in, in real life. Yes, definitely. And and like I said, it, it's going to be interesting. I'm going to find all the virtual derbies I can over the weekend and spend my time watching them. And finally, we have the Arkansas Derby, which uh, Oaklawn decided to step into some big shoes. And run their Arkansas Derby late. Uh, it's usually a qualifying race for the Kentucky Derby. And it will be again. And they've got uh, two fields. Or two divisions. Yeah, so this is this has kind of been an interesting development. We kind of figured this would probably happen because they're really with races like the Bluegrass not being available, the Wood Memorial not being available, the San Antonio Derby not being available, really the Arkansas Derby was the only race that was out there as a prep race, um, even with them moving the time the time of it. Uh, so it, it figured that it would get a lot of interest in entries. Um, and so it is, you know, it'll be interesting with it split into two divisions. There's some people that feel, you know, it would have been better if they kept it as one race and just had, you know, um, the top horses from both well, the top horses from each division would potentially just be in one race then, but that actually would right. would have left out a horse like Charlatan who didn't really have any graded stakes earnings or anything yet. Um, uh, he would he would have been on the outside looking in. So um, mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting to see. You know, there's some people that think that Baffert has pretty much just got it locked up already with his two Charlatan and Nadal, but um, you know, there's 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 a lot of other good horses in there, and you, you really don't know what'll happen until you until you actually run it. So it's uh, it looks like it's going to be a great card overall, um, uh, and you know, looking forward to seeing how how these three year olds are going to do, um, and how many of them you know that are looking good at this time of the year carry their form all the way through to September, um, and will we be seeing a totally different makeup for the Derby field? Although I can't really see it too much. 
uh, come September, if some of these horses are, you know, you know, unfortunately, hopefully it doesn't happen, but if they're unfortunately injured or, you know, lose their form a little bit, will they still be, you know, ready to peak uh, in September as they would have been uh, this Saturday? Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that is going to be that is going to be strange for um, a lot of the horses, the ones who took off and the ones who have continued training and uh, the ones who've continued running because as three-year-olds, they're still babies and they're still learning the game. And so if a horse that's been out in a pasture, you know, he may have to relearn everything he learned as a two-year-old or, or as a three-year-old. So, Yeah. And, and the other thing with these, the two, especially with, you know, horses mature at different rates. So, a lot of times you'll see, you know, and, and they, they point to this every year, you know, how many of how many of the three-year-olds that are in the starting gate for the Derby end up, you know, making multiple starts towards the end of the year? Or are they laid up with injury or are they just, you know, you, you just never hear from them again, um, you know, in, in the major races. And it, oftentimes it's because if you do have a horse that's very, you know, still a little bit ahead of the rest of the crop – well, in, in in the spring they can get a, they can get away with that because the rest of the crop is trying to catch up. But by the fall, usually, you know, those late blooming three year olds have caught up to them. So it's uh, you know it's usually not the same class of three year olds you're always looking at. So you know, will a horse like Tis the Law be as dominant as he is now in September? Will a horse like Nadal be as dominant um, or look as good now, you know, as, as he would in September? I mean, you know, a lot of these trainers that are good at getting ready for the Derby they have a program that's designed to get them ready to peak, you know, the first Saturday in May, not necessarily the first Saturday in September. So um, Mm -hmm. how is that going to affect? I mean, there's one horse out there uh, that was a really good two-year-old last year, Maxfield, that everybody really liked going into the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, and then he had a scratch because of injury. Um, And he's now working his way back into racing. And, you know, the, the Derby getting moved to September is probably the best thing that could have happened for a horse like that. Um, cause now he can, you know, train and race into that race and not have to worry about trying to play catch up. Cause he wouldn't have made the Derby if, if it was being run this weekend. Right. I guess another thing to be determined is, are there going to be prep races leading into September for some of these other horses who don't make their points or who are going to need the points to get into the Derby? Yeah, and, and we're, we're, I, I think everybody's in a holding pattern on that. And, and Churchill Downs has said they will add points races, you know, through the spring and summer um, leading into the Derby. But I think the problem is nobody really has their schedule set yet because they don't know when they're going to be racing again. So um, it's hard for them to kind of plan even three-year-old races uh, without mm-hmm. knowing exactly when their schedules are going to open up and, you know, how, how that's going to affect everything. I mean, obviously, the the big one that everybody is talking about is uh, the Travers up at Saratoga. Well, right now, technically, that if everything stays the same, that's run a week before the Kentucky Derby. So are you going to make the Travers a points race if they're going to keep it when it is? Um, you know, my gut tells I me they won't, Travers... and they'll probably try to move it to, like, the beginning of the Saratoga meet. But, you know, then you've got two races at a mile and a quarter, or, or horses still going to want to prep in a mile and a quarter race for a mile and a quarter race. Um, right. there's just so many variables in it that, uh, you know, I, I think Churchill Down wants to get some sort of schedule up, and, and I think the trainers want that too so they can backtrack and, and really plan out routes for their horses. But until some of these tracks are allowed to open back up and get set schedules 
for racing, um, that's going to be a little hard for them to get it's points races be, on the on the schedule. Well, I would I would tell Churchill Downs that if we can't get our acts together, and there are too many moving parts for everything to run smoothly, let's just suspend points for this year. And if they don't have points, go with earnings. Look at earnings. It's that's one way to go. I mean, I think you might have to you might have to tweak that for earnings in certain types of races because that was the the earnings thing is the reason they went to the point system to begin with um, because you could have a horse. What, the problem was they were getting all these precocious two year olds that were winning some of the big stakes races, say the Breeders' Cup Juvenile or the Delta Downs Jackpot, which was a million dollars. And if, if you won that, you, you were guaranteed a spot in the Derby. Um, you know, that gave you enough earnings to make the gate, but you may be a horse that really is only a six furlong sprinter. Um, and so it was leading to a lot of horses that probably shouldn't have been in the Derby, um, based on ability, uh, to run that far. But again, you know, every owner wants to win it. So if, if you've got a chance to be in it, you know, Derby fever is going to take over the points, um, system was really designed, uh, to be used to try to weed that out and so have only horses that were really okay. supposed to be able to make the derby distance and, and, and you know, be competitive in it to, to make the starting gate. And the one interesting thing that's popped out, and I, I don't know how long this is going to continue, but since they went to the point system, um, the, the, bed, the post-time favorite has won the derby every year. Um, and that's something that just never happened when you had the earnings uh, one. I mean, you were lucky if a favorite one, I think, once mm-hmm. a decade. Um, but uh, okay. it's an interesting it's an interesting concept. Um, uh, I, I would say that if oh, they're probably going to go to an earnings model, which I don't think they will, because I think you'd get too much of an uproar from horsemen that have already gotten points um, and maybe not necessarily got them in the highest priced races. Uh, you probably mm-hmm. have to see them say like it's going to be earnings in stakes races over a mile or something. You know, they'll they'll probably put some caveat on right. Try to make it. Or look at three year old, three year old earnings. Yeah, as a three year old, because we have computers now. It's really easy to figure. You know, separate two year old from three year old, mm-hmm. and look at their three year old earnings uh, in stakes. Maybe not. Uh, allowance claiming, although some of them like maximum security was claimed. I think it was a sixty thousand dollar claim. Yeah, well, he was he was actually put into a. Um, I don't think he was ever claimed. He was always kept by the same owners, but he was actually run in a, a sixteen thousand dollar claimer. Actually, okay, um, sixteen thousand. Yeah, but and nobody and you know trainers sometimes will do that because they know that nobody's going to try to claim the horse if for some reason you're running them that low. There must be something wrong with them. Um, so he got away with it in that one. And of course, you know, the rest is history, but, um, yeah, it would be, you know, it would have to be probably graded stakes earnings of some kind. And again, that raises the whole issue of how many three-year-old graded stakes races are there going to be, um, you know, when the, when the, when the schedules work out, I mean, you know, the ha- when hey, this will be the, probably the only time in history, the Haskell is used as a derby prep. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought the Travers was also run after the Derby. It is. Uh, it's run. Uh, it's it's usually run the depending on how the calendar works, either the second to last or the last weekend in August. Um, okay. But and that's where it, it traditionally is. Um, that's why they call it the Midsummer Derby. 
Um, but this yeah. year, it, a lot of the talk is, it's, I think that the, the Derby is supposed to be September 5th. The Travers, if it goes as scheduled, is supposed to be run the weekend before that. So, um, okay. So the question is, would horses that potentially would be potentially good in either, I mean, they're both a mile and a quarter, which race holds greater prestige? So would you still point your horse for the Travers, or would you point him for the Derby? And would horses that go in the Travers almost be like a second-tier Derby field that just didn't have enough points to make the Derby? Um you know, or would you try to reschedule the Travers okay. to be much earlier in the Saratoga meet, say like around you know the the, the middle of July or something like that, um, to give them that five six weeks to to prep for the Derby? So there's a lot. Of, it's it, it's just amazing how many scenarios you know we're we're all trying to figure out here. And 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 again, Naira is the only one that knows what what they're planning to do. Mm-hmm. So, well, do you have any favorites in the divisions? The two divisions. Um, for you know, I, I mean, Charlatan looks like he could be any any type of horse. Um, it's definitely going to be a class test for him. But I mean, if he runs as good as he looked out in California, um, I, I I can't see anybody in that division that's that's necessarily going to beat him. Um, but again, you know, this is going to be the big class test for him. I mean, Baffert certainly knows how to get him ready for, uh, you know, for Oakland. He's he's you know definitely done a lot to to win those races. Uh, the other division is a little bit more interesting to me. Um, you know, I mean, Nadal has already proven that he's you know that good. Um, but I don't know. You know, again, he's facing uh, uh, you know a, a a bigger test. You know, probably than. Um, uh, he was getting. I'm just trying to pull up the field real quick. Yeah. Um, so this way I can just check to see the. There we go. Division two. That's what I wanted to see. Because um, <laughs> I can't even remember who's running in all of those. I always liked. I mean, I always thought it was just a really cool name, and I know he's probably not good enough, but um, I always thought Finnick the Fierce was like a really cool name for a horse. So. Um, yes. Again, just he's playing apparently one. Um, the other one that's probably, uh, you know, going to be interesting in the second division, um, is, uh, King Guillermo. And I just, I don't know how good he really is. Uh, and I think, you know, he could be one that potentially could surprise if the others don't, um, you know, kind of pop in, uh, Wells Bayou might be another one, but, you know, again, I don't know how good he's potentially going to be, um, uh, you know, again, I don't know if he just got more of an easy win in the last one, uh, or just some of the other horses didn't fire. So um, it's 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 going to be interesting to see. I mean, you definitely have. Um, yeah. And then I think if you go back to the first division, you've got um, almost positive I saw him in there, but I just want to make sure. It was... My desktop computer is acting up, so. Yeah, um, well, Governor know. Morris might be one that could potentially challenge Charlatan in that one. Um, get down off there. There we go. Um, and there was a, there's already been a scratch, I think, shoot or shoot. Yeah, they said that uh, it's already scratched. with a fever. So, um, yeah. But really, I mean, in that first division, the only one I can really see, uh, you know, challenging Charlatan at all would be um, 
would be Governor Morris in that one. Um, you know, I mean, Pletcher, I think, has been kind of quietly confident with him, um, and he still has kind of flown a little bit under the radar. Uh, but I, I can't really see uh, anybody else in that one. Uh, that's they really that one really is the weaker probably of the two divisions. Yeah. So I I I can't see. I mean, I'm kind of you know. I like Bob Baffert. I like Brad, Brad Cox though too. So <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. he's, like been doing, that on now. he's been running really well of late. So, um, but I but, like Charlottetown. But I I think Nadal is just going to blow Division Two away. Looking at his prior races, he's something else. Yeah, and especially, um, you know, looking at his last race, uh, you know, basically, um, you know, he he set all the pace, and, you know, it was quite the pace in the, in the, in the uh, Rebel. And, um, you know, so obviously he's already got a win over the track and, uh, you know, no, knows how to run. It's um, I guess the, the only question is going to be the slight increase in distance, and will he be able to, to um, you know, if he gets stuck in that kind of pace scenario again, is he going to be able to – stand all the challengers in this one. Uh, he's got the breeding for it, so I don't see why he wouldn't be able to. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, like I said, it's, I think he's, he's up against a little bit more of a, um, uh, a tougher field on this one. You know, Silver Prospector, I, I don't know, Asmussen's been kind of on a cold streak of late, so you don't mm-hmm. really know how good that one is, but... Um, other than that, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's probably going to be between um, Nadal and uh, uh, King Guillermo would be my guess. You know, storm the court. Everybody keeps trying to wait for him to, you know, re- repeat that uh, Breeders' Cup win, but that was a Breeders' Cup juvenile that kind of just completely fell apart. So, uh, mm-hmm. I, th- I, you know, I think his best days were are already behind him, at least at this level. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, and like I said, I, yeah, I can't, if Nadal runs the way he ran in the Rebel, I really can't see him getting beaten this one. But, um, you know, I, w- I wouldn't right. mind Finnick the Fierce coming in, you know, in the exactor or something like that. Just to, um, uh, you know, again, just because I love the horse from the time I first saw him, saw him run. Yeah. And he's a one-eyed horse, if yep. I understand correctly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I I love those. Um, yeah, you know, I love seeing they can do everything everybody, you know, they can do everything their other horse friends do. Uh, it's not. I, I can't, I have to look up. I can't remember if he was born that way or if he had an injury that caused it. Um, but what's interesting about those horses is the one thing we look at is kind of where their post position is. Cause depending on when, and I can't remember which eye he has or doesn't, um, but that actually sometimes can affect things. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, like horses that you know have the right eye intact, sometimes you want them more on the uh, you know the outside because they can see things a little bit better. But if you know sometimes you want them only seeing the rail, it, it's you, sometimes post position can actually make a difference in those types of horses depending on how they're used to running. Yeah, I'm trying to look to see which eye he has. Um, 
had a congenital cataract in his right eye. Okay. So it's he's he's missing the right eye. So he can see it to the left. Yeah, so he and it looks like he is um I'm not sure because I don't think at least the list I'm looking at doesn't show post position. Oh wait, no, yeah, it does. Um so he's breaking from the rail, I believe, um, which might be, I mean, if he can only see the rail and not see the horses on the outside, all the horses on the outside of him, um, mm-hmm. times can be a little bit problematic. Um, right. You know, it's, uh, it all depends. I mean, horses that have really thick blinkers on, it's sort of the same thing. I mean, they really don't see horses, come, you know, they're just focused straight forward. So, um, you know, but, uh, you know, obviously a lot of one-eyed horses run and, and don't have any problems or anything like that. So, uh um, like I said, it's, uh, to me, it's just a, it, it, you know, I look for horses that have really cool names, um, and every now mm-hmm. and then you like that. So, yeah, that is a good. It's a, it's an excellent name. I love it as well. So I'll, I'll be following Finnick. The fierce. It sounds like a Viking name. Yeah, or almost like a. I was thinking you're Viking, or almost like a Monty Python type of name. Um, <laughs> you can almost have a, you know, a character from. Holy Grail name that for some reason or something like that. Oh Lord, um, gosh, yeah, I can see Michael Palin as Spinnick the Fierce. Yep. <laughs> oh boy. See now you got me giggling about something else. <laughs> well, it's just I, you know, I, like, I'm a huge. Python fan, so you know. Again, it would mm-hmm. it would it would have to be worked in in a way that you know he would be like either this, you know, it would almost have to be like a dwarf or somebody like that playing, you know, the the character or whatever, and um, yeah, totally opposite of what you would expect with with that type of uh, with that type of name. Yeah, and Finnick the Fierce, and um, what was Tim Conway's golfer? Oh, uh, Dorf. Dorf. Or Mr. Tudwaller. Yep. So. Michael has no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I'm just letting y'all go on that one. <laughs> You need to you need to find Carol Burnett reruns or DVDs. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I think that pretty much does it for tonight. Okay. And we covered everything because I wasn't so ambitious. I, yeah, hopefully, I didn't, always you know, obviously, without Michael here, I you know didn't bore too many people. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at not boring at all. I, like I said, you and Mr. Amo are two of our favorite guests, and you've been on three times. Oh, like I said, we we appreciate it, and anything like I said, anything we can do to spread the the word about racing, and you know, to, you know, promote it from both a positive and angle and stuff like that, we are more than happy to more than happy to, to to do this as many times as people want us to. Well. Like I said, we've had it's it's always an enjoyable conversation, and uh, all the work that you do, we want to help you spread the word. 
Yeah, like I said, we really appreciate it. It's uh, you know, it uh, it takes a village, um, especially when it comes to racing and and every every bit of help that we can get, you know, in, in spreading the word and and getting people hopefully to the track and and starting to follow the sport more and stuff like that. Uh, is really what we're about. It's you know, it's like I said, it's probably going to be one of the sports that comes back before any of the other major sports. So um, mm-hmm. now is the time to to really try to you know do your research and you know, get involved in it a little bit more and start mining some of that data. I mean, you know, it's it's no different than any other sport. You can really get involved in it from the data standpoint, too. And, um, you know, and if, if, if people start following, you know, and we've always talked about this, if they also start following racing as a sport and not just as a gambling enterprise, you have a mm-hmm. lot of the same storylines as you do in, in major sports, uh, if not better ones. It's just, um, you know, it, you just have to dig for them a little bit and, and uh, you know, uh, read a little bit more about the, the characters and and the players that were involved. You know, jockeys have agents just like every other sport, you know, sports people have agents. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can discuss training moves the same way you can discuss managerial moves. There's, you know, it's a, there's a lot of similarities. You just have to, to, to really want to get involved in it. Right, right. And I've just always loved horses, so. <laughs> well, that's always, you know, yeah, that's obviously what we that's want everybody That's the draw to. for me. It was, uh, uh, the it's all about the horse first and foremost. And and seeing those, some of them like the performances. Um, Nadal, watching him run American Pharaoh, justify watching them run, is uh, is just a you know beauteous thing to behold. Oh yeah, and, and it's it's like I tell everybody, like you can't, you cannot get the feeling. Or, or understand what racing is about by seeing it on TV all the time. Um, so, you know, while for a lot of the big races, you know, yeah, I mean, I would love to be at every big track for every big race. I can't be. So you you, you have to, you know, watch it on TV sometimes. But, you know, everybody needs to get out to a track, even if it's not a big day. I mean, you know, it's um, – you. there's no other sport where you can get as close to the competitors, you know, on a daily basis as you can with, with racing. And, um, mm-hmm. uh we talk all the time. Sometimes, you know, if you're just at the track on a what might be considered a regular Saturday, and it's you know a, a Saturday in the fall at at even a, 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 a second level track or something, you might see a two year old there running in its first race or breaking its maiden that turns out to be the Derby favorite the next year. And you know, it's, right. it's nobody nobody really knows, but you have a, a picture of him when he when he won that race, and. Um, you know, you can say you were there, you saw him and, and all that stuff. And it just, when you, when you really just take in all of the sights and sounds of racing and the, and the experience, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like no other. I, I was fortunate enough to be at Belmont, both for Pharaohs and Justify's Triple Crown wins. And, um, I had also been there for the previous, I don't know what it was, 11 or 12 failed attempts. Um, mm-hmm. and when Pharaoh won, I, you know, I mean, I can tell you that, I have never heard sound when he hit that wire like like I heard that day. Um, uh, you, you just you can't you can't replicate that feeling. You can't replicate that sound. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it was just absolutely awesome. And I remember even um, some of the NBC uh, camera guys saying, you know, they they go around and cover all the major sporting events. Uh, throughout the year, and they said they had never experienced anything like that um, when, when he won that race. Uh, as far as just the the, the atmosphere and the, and the noise and all of that, um, it was just really magic, you know, magical and, and special. And that's that's really what racing is about. It's uh, 
you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's, it's just getting involved in, in, in any way that you can and following it and just going to your local track and, and, and enjoying it. I mean, it's, there, there's, there's no better day out than, um, you know, a day at the track. Right. And, you know, as soon as New Orleans reopens, I think I am going to, I'm going to take a trip out to fairgrounds and spend some time at fairgrounds. Yeah, I'm told that I think they did some remodeling there um, this year uh, to upgrade some of the facilities and stuff like that. So um, Mm -hmm. hopefully, like I said, it's, uh, we're all hoping that, you know, by, Mid-May, early June at the absolute latest, a lot of these tracks will be open. Um, you know, I don't foresee them allowing fans till at least the fall at the earliest, but... Um, right. Uh, because of all the concerns and, and things like that, but uh, that's still no reason you can't, you know, uh, you know, hopefully get out as soon as you possibly can, and, you know, but also just enjoying it on TV. If there's no other way for us to do it right now, that's that's just going to be the way we're going to have to, and, you know, you still can you still can get close to them that way as well. Mhm. I I when you were talking about American Pharaoh, I was like couldn't breathe because I saw him pulling away and I, I kept thinking he's going to do it. He's actually going to do it. He's going to do it. And once he crossed the wire, I let out a whoop and then I started crying. Yeah, and my and, sister and came was, in. What's I mean, wrong with you? I, I think we all did. <laughs> you know, it was just that, that much emotion built up you know, for so many failed attempts, like, I, you know, it's, I think somebody put out on Twitter a while ago, what was the loudest you've ever heard a racetrack and the quietest. And really I could almost say that was at, in the same race because I was there in 2004 when Smarty Jones was going for the, for the triple crown. And it, it was probably almost as, and at that point, I mean, there was probably 30,000 more people there than when Pharaoh was. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it was probably just about as loud as he was coming down the stretch. And then when Birdstone caught him, I mean, you could hear a pin drop in the in the grandstand. It was just right. everybody was just we were just stunned into silence that that horse had lost. And you know, so it's uh, you know those types of you can't you can't mimic that even in a in any other sports stadium. It's it's just the the feeling you get at a major race day is just it, it, it's like no other. It's uh, um, you know, and uh, I was there when when Rachel ran in the Woodward, and um, I mean, there was so much cheering. I, I was, some of us thought that, that that the old you know grandstand was going to start to come apart. I mean, that's how loud we were all stomping and cheering, and um, you know, it's uh, you can feel the whole the whole foundation just shake when you've got that many people rooting uh, for a horse. It's uh, it really is just it's yeah. just unreal uh, the the feeling you get at the track. Yeah, it's Tom Durkin co- coined the phrase "raise Rachel, raise the roof." Yep, yep. And I, I, I mean, he must have that. definitely felt it because, uh, you know, I've been in that booth a couple of times when they were doing kind of like the third race call with Durkin and stuff. And yeah, yeah, everything's attached. So I'm sure that he uh, felt those vibrations too, and uh, you know, uh, and uh, you know, noted it uh, appropriately. I mean, probably nobody better in the game uh, for catching, you know, or 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 uh, capturing the moment in words uh, better than him when it comes to announcing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He he was good. He's retired now. Yep. Uh, Larry Colmas, though. 
is good. Yeah, Larry's pretty good, although it's, it's interesting now. I guess he's only going to be really be working for NBC, to, to my knowledge. Um, he's not coming back to mm-hmm. Naira. Um, but John and Brielle, oh. who, who always got the, the whole, the full car, you know, duties, he's probably one of the most underrated race callers in the country. I mean, and he, he always has been. I mean, he's actually a phenomenal race caller, and he's just always kind of filled that backup role, so I don't think everybody really got a chance to truly appreciate how good of a race caller he really is. Um, so it'll be nice to hopefully, okay. and when racing comes up and Naira starts running again, uh, people will really get to see that as he gets to call some of the bigger races. Yeah, I would love to hear that because, um, you know, to see how how he handles it. I love, you know, Tom Durkin and, and Larry Colmas, they're, they're both so good with the emotional turn of phrase that yep. marks the race, you know, so I, I would love to hear him. And when racing comes back, hopefully Fox Sports will have the original callers and not replace them with someone else. Yeah, I don't <laughs> usually when they do that, it's it's the uh, it's the whoever is the track announcer, Um Fox yeah. Sports normally when they when they cover the races like that it's not they don't have their own contracted race caller for things like that so uh, I believe it's only NBC that really has has Colmas contracted for the races that um, that they that they run right well I think they want the continuity and consistency yeah mm-hmm. for from one race to the next so. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. We just went into the archive portion of the show. Okay. Um, and I I hope Mr. Amo is well. Yeah, as far as I know, like when he contacted me earlier, he is. I think he just had a, a, a conflict that came up at the last second. So um, um, I think that's why he, he wasn't able to make it. But as far as I know, like I, I, I usually communicate with, with him at least weekly. And, and as far as I know, he's doing good. So. Good, good. I I. I was a little concerned when I got the email, and I, I hope it was, like I said, it's work or Therofan or his wife wants his attention, although I can't imagine that there are many wives out there not wishing their husbands would leave the house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll, be, they'll be forming their own protest soon, you know, to open things up uh, if things don't, <laughs> don't start uh, easing up. The, 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 one of the memes on Facebook is, um, if this goes on another month, do we have to stay with the same family? Yeah, I've Asking seen that. for a friend. <laughs> I'm lucky I had the house to myself. Yeah, I pretty much, yeah, I mean, I you know, the, like said, it, it, the stuff really didn't affect me that much because I was still here at work every day, but, um, I mean, I live alone in an apartment, so it's just me and the dog. So it, uh, you know, he enjoyed it for a little bit as I was, you know, off every now and then. He got, you know, a little bit more attention in walks and stuff like that. But there were even jokes going around about, you know, um, people going, you know, going stir crazy and taking their dogs on like eight walks a day. And it's like, you know, the dogs just uh-huh. like, no, go away because I've already been out eight times. I just want to sleep. Yeah. Another funny meme is dogs think we quit our jobs to be with them and cats think we got fired and we're lying about it. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, the memes are good. I have a couple people that 
unfortunately don't see the humor sometimes. Yeah. And I've gotten smacked about posting a meme. But I just think to myself, oh, get a sense of humor. and That's, the, that's the way I look at it. I mean, you know, every now and then somebody will comment on something I put up, but it's kind of like, eh, just scroll past. <laughs> right. You know, you don't have to, so. you're, you're choosing to make an issue of it. You could just ignore it and move on and... Um, as far as, so that's the kind of the way I, you know, it's, I've learned that, you know, uh, every now and then I cross the line on some of the humorous things that I do. And, you know, if, if it, you know, makes 15 people laugh and two people be pissed, well, you know, I'm going to focus on the 15 that were happy. And you're still, you're up by 13. Yeah. You know, and it's, you know, I'm not going to, you know, take something down or change it just because one person is offended or something like that. So, mm-hmm. all right. All right. Well, thank you so much, and have a great rest of your week. And I'll look forward to seeing more videos on Twitter. Yep, I got I got an interesting one in the works. Um, it'll probably be like one of my last quarantine ones before they lift everything. So, but that'll be about a week or so away. I've got to finish putting a lot of parts of it together. Okay. And then, um, where can people go if they're interested in your virtual slumber party? Uh, uh, where they should go they to, go? Uh, Pet Pantry of Lancaster County. Either just search that on Facebook, or uh, if they go to petpantrylc.org, they can find it in the events section. Um, and all the info is there. It doesn't. I, we do, you know, we're, as a fundraiser, we're doing it, you know, with different ticket prices and stuff. But we realize that people are. You know, if there's people that are hurting right now for money because of everything with the economy, it's also just a fun thing. So people don't have to pay to be part of it. Um, it, it you know, if they just want to attend, we can, you know, they can get a ticket for free, and they'll get the website to log into that night to to be part of it. Okay, and I just don't be surprised. I might join y'all. Hey, that's it. More the merrier. So, of course, I have to I have to start looking online and find some interesting pajamas. Yep, that's you know that's that's the that's the whole uh, the whole fun of it. And like I said, who knows? We got you know still about two weeks, so who knows what other weird pajama concoctions they're going to come up with for me for this. <laughs> All righty, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Take care. You too. Stay healthy. You too. Bye. And every time, every time I sit here and I'm, I don't think about horse racing that much, but man, I sit there and I start thinking about this stuff and I'm like, man, he makes me feel like I could actually go in there and do the crap and make bets and all sorts of stuff. He, he, he's really awesome. Him and, uh, mm-hmm. him and Michael as well. Mr. Amo, I mean, you know, I, I, I think I'm okay asking questions and interviewing people, but I don't have the sense of just talking. You did having a conversation. Yeah, I mean, that's why on these I let you I let you take the lead because you know you know about horse racing. I don't, so definitely. I mean, and they're always interesting. I I, I just yeah. sit back and learn. So. Yeah, I just it's um with with Mr. Amo and and Dr. Langwa, it's just like it's like we're friends chatting on the phone. 
and I'm not nervous or, or concerned or worried or anything. Absolutely. And with other guests, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh, I decided today, since I've been wanting to talk to a criminal judge, to okay. uh, talk about what a criminal court does and doesn't do, uh, what their role is, because a lot of people seem to have a uh, an unrealistic expectation of criminal judges in the cases that we talk about. Mm-hmm. I'm going to reach out to Judge Marilyn Million of People's okay. Court. Oh, nice. And see if she can come on because she did serve on the criminal bench in Florida okay. during her career. She was also involved with a project in um, kind of reforming the judicial system in Guatemala. Nice. Or an effort to reform the judicial system. Um, theirs was a Napoleonic system, but it was closed proceedings that it was basically on briefs. Okay. There were no court, you know, courtroom open proceedings. And I'd, I'd like to learn more about that from her. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to reach out to her uh, or if not her, her husband, who is also a judge mm-hmm. and I believe is a criminal court judge, just to talk about what a judge's role is, because a lot of people think, uh, you know, in post-conviction, they get a, a writ from, let's just say Rodney Reed, and they think the judge can just, okay, gets the writ and, oh, new trial. Conviction vacated, and that's the end of it. And they don't understand that there's a process. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, just as at at trial they're claiming, oh, the judge wouldn't let them bring in evidence. Well, okay, they wouldn't let them bring in the polygraph, but they would never have let them bring in the polygraph. And they wouldn't have let the prosecution bring in the polygraph if Rodney Reed had taken a polygraph and failed. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's because polygraphs are never, ever, ever admissible. It has nothing right. to do <laughs> with the judge being on one side or the other. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna see, you know, if I can, if I can get uh, one of one of them to appear. Okay. Thank you. So. Uh, and I did finish Tiger King. Oh, nice. And I curse you. You curse for the torture me? of listening to him sing Joe Exotic. Oh. Singing. Oh. Don't um, act like you don't love that, even though you totally have oh. to realize he's lip syncing. God. It was awful. Oh. oh. <laughs> So, oh. um, but yeah, it was, uh, it, it's, I did some research and, you know, Carol Baskin is a sanctimonious freaking bitch. Absolutely. And she killed her husband. Well, no, I don't, I don't think we can go there. Um, because yeah, everything Joe Exotic it, had was just speculation and childish, trollish accusations. 
Right. Um, he yeah. didn't. He uh, didn't have it. Anything. Really, only got real to me, kind of like the meme. Whenever she was like, "Hey, if I wanted to make a tiger eat you, I'd cover you in sardine oil." And it's kind of like the meme. Whenever they played that clip and then put the meme over it, it's like, uh, well, but that here. was because he was saying people put cologne on his shoes, so the tigers right. would attack him. I don't know. Some just and, gets off about that whole situation. I'll be honest with you, Lisa. Obviously, well, you know, until until like, like I said, true. she is she is a sanctimonious bitch because she Absolutely. has been circulating outdated information about LSU and Mike the Tiger for you. And I mean, also not to not not to make an excuse for what Joe did because that was wrong too. Um. And, you know, she did the same thing to Doc Antley, the guy in South Carolina, right. that Joe did to her, except that Doc Antley didn't have the sense to try and bring some kind of trademark action against her. Absolutely. Hey, it's just a big bunch of uh, specialness. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I still say that for her to criticize LSU, given the current state of Big Cat Rescue's enclosures, got some big freaking balls. And they're not yeah. Howard's. So, no, the husband, there's a lot of pieces missing from that, quote, documentary. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's something that I'm glad that they're looking into again just because I don't think anybody's murder should go unsolved or, well, potential murder. Or, well, if it was even a murder. I mean, yeah. theoretically, whether you want to believe it or not, if he was illegally flying planes because he didn't have his license, and he was not filing flight plans when he left Airport A. He could be he he could be at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's all sorts and of things. I mean, like I said, nobody I mean, would if he didn't. There's something off about her. Didn't get a Mayday call nothing. out. Nobody knows. And if he wasn't filing flight plans, nobody knows he left, and nobody knows. Where to look for him? It, it, yeah. You know, it is plausible. Uh, so, I don't, I, I really don't think, I, I don't think she did. I mean, she benefited from his disappearance, but even then, I think she waited five to seven years. Mm-hmm. She did get the power of attorney. But even that makes sense. Costa Rica and, you know, South America during that time were, you know, those places were not stable. Now, I will say one thing and, that is just an undisputable fact with me. She was a she was a just complete asshole to that man's family. I will say that. Just Oh, yeah, exactly. definitely. But that, you know, that happens. Baby, that happens with second marriages all the freaking time. Oh, I agree. 
you know, I was just watching that, that, that happens in second marriages. Tonight. It happens in second marriages when the husband dies of natural causes after a long illness. Oh, and by the way, her husband is a character in and of himself. Oh, yeah. Howard is, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> the thing I don't like, I didn't like about her is I can see where people think she had something to do with it because she has this annoying tendency to say something and then he <laughs> after she says it it's like right this is why people think you off your husband's husband girl mm-hmm. but like I don't I don't like her I mean I I I despise the woman she's a hypocrite because she started out in the breeding business mm-hmm. and the petting business and all of a sudden because she's had a moral epiphany and decided that it's not right, now she's out to get anybody who doesn't agree with her. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what's wrong with today's uh, society is we think everybody has to always agree with us, and if they don't, then they're evil and must be destroyed. Absolutely. And let's and, be honest, you know, it, didn't, it didn't help Joe's... Uh, Joe already was a few crayons short of a full box, and uh, she definitely did not help matters by pushing things the oh, way God, she did. Oh, God, no, yeah. I mean, yeah, jo- Joe was uh, many fries short of a Happy Meal. <laughs> That's definitely a, uh accurate uh, statement. <laughs> you know, many, and the people, most of the people around Joe were yeah, he wasn't a few fries short of a happy meal. I mean, they were good people, to be honest. They were good people, but yeah. Some of them were, but some of them... Um, that one did. Like the two the, straight men that he married? I mean, I don't know yeah. what their what their deal was, except they got drugs. All I'm saying is allegedly straight. <laughs> I'm just saying, there's something. Well, no, I, 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 I think he was giving him enough drugs, and sex is sex with that generation, whether it's a male or a female. And um, now the the big shocker for me was what happened to Travis Maldonado. That yeah. I did not see coming. Well, I mean, they kept talking about him, and they kept talking about him, and then the whole situation, and my goodness, I, I don't, see, part of me, though, I like the funeral scene, when he, when that man's mama is sitting right there, and I'm just like, yeah, is he putting on for the camera, or is he really this freaking stupid? Yeah. So then again, I think it was. She said it was like three months later, and he invited her to his new wedding. So who knows? I, yeah, that one. That was basically. Yeah, that was. That was for the publicity, and and you know he wanted to say if Mama doesn't mind, so y'all shut up. Absolutely. Yeah. It, so it's crazy. But. Uh, and I, I, you know, I told you I found his direct appeal. Well, I didn't find his direct appeal because his direct appeal is still in the works. Okay. But I found on, um, I found somewhere 
an, a, an order, an opinion, or maybe even a brief. Mm-hmm. And I, for the life of me, cannot find it now. <laughs> so, uh, but we may talk about that case uh, once this direct appeal is concluded. Right on. Because, and there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of cases. Um, I'm also interested in the uh, the case filed by Big Cat Rescue. The uh, the against lawsuit? him. And you know, but and but all of that was basically two grown ass adults acting like little five year old children. Absolutely, they, they were the whole time. They were uh, wow. I don't think any of them. I think all of them are uh, a few fries short of a happy meal, as you said earlier. To be honest with you, yes, they are. So. All right, well, why don't we wrap this up before Let's do it. Blog Talk wraps it up for us. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us on Tuesday, May 5th, 2020, at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 11, The West Memphis Three. We'll be joined by Roberta Glass, host of Roberta Glass True Crime Report, and Meredith Elizabeth. We'll talk about the recent documentaries aired on Oxygen and ID, the Innocence Narrative, and some of the information the documentaries left out. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.